You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. It is uh, the Martha Zoller Show. And, of course, this is a very, very big week related to uh, federal government. You know, they all feel like big weeks. I really think that a lot of us are kind of at the breaking point where... Uh, We don't know what to do. We feel like there's this noise out there. We feel like, what do we do? And I think that the best advice I could give is you just kind of have to bring things back and focus on what you can control. Because um, I think that, number one, as far as the federal stuff goes, what you've got to really focus on is communicating with your elected official. Okay, so you... And I was thinking a lot about this last night because I know a lot of us want to be involved in certain issues. And we think that if we just flood the mailboxes of everybody we don't like with what we think is the right thing to do, then they're going to do what we want to do. I mean, we had Mike Collins on yesterday and he talked about some new um, immigration bills that are going to come out of three committees. And then I was listening to a news report this morning. Oh, these are dead on arrival right off the bat. And I know they were talking about the same thing that Mike Collins was talking about. But I got to thinking, how can we, the people, we, the public, make an impact? And there's a few things that I learned from Uh, working for Senator Perdue and Governor Kemp, is that certainly in Governor Kemp's situation, everybody in the state of Georgia is his constituent. The same thing with with, uh, Senator Perdue. Um, But we were getting email from all over the country. Even, you know, whether we're in the governor's office or the senator's office, you get it from all over the country. And let me just tell you something. If you're mad at Kathy Hochul or whatever her name is in New York for banning gas stoves, if you write her a letter and tell her you're mad about that, it goes into the circular file. They don't care because you're not a New Yorker, okay? And I don't blame them. They've got 25 million constituents of their own. So the organization at the grassroots level has got to change, all right, because it's got to be more focused on what actually can be accomplished. The first thing that's got to happen is you need to have a relationship with your own elected officials, whether they are your your state representative, your state senator, your county commissioner, your um, congressional representative, your two senators. Okay, those are the people that care what you think. Now, to some degree, state senators are not the universe, I'm sorry, federal senators since right now we have two Democrats, they're not going to care a whole lot about what Republicans send them or for what traditional Republicans. And I can hear John Ossoff in my ear saying, no, Martha, I'm not that way. But I'm talking about re-election. You see them spending a lot more time in the areas where they did a lot better. Okay, that's just a fact. All right. So what you've got to do is make sure you are sending communication whether it's mailing a letter, doing an email, sending a postcard, calling. We keep track of that. They keep track of these phone calls. Make sure you are calling a person that you are a constituent of. And now you say to me, okay, Martha, 
What about if we want to mobilize on something like immigration that's going to happen this week or something like that? Then you have to figure out, get involved in an organization, whether it's uh, the Georgia Feder- the Georgia Federation of Republican Women, where we have a chapter here in Hall County that's the Republican Women of Hall, and it is connected with the National Federation of Republican Women. That way you can kind of spread out, you can get contacts in other in other states, and then you can get people that live in the states of the people you want to impact to send cards and letters to them. You have to organize in that way. Because we've got a mess out here. And I, and I I don't want to start listing, but I'm going to, even though it's going to make us feel overwhelmed. We've got assault on Second Amendment rights because people don't want to talk about the truth of this situation is that it's not the law-abiding gun owner that is creating these problems that we're having. And they will say back to you, oh, but so-and-so person that did a mass shooting bought their guns legally. Well, that may be true. That may be true. And, and But they still did not, they did not use the guns lawfully. They are not lawful gun owners if they do not use the guns lawfully if they do not follow the law in using the guns. They are not lawful gun owners if you do not follow the law in using the guns. So we've got to, uh, nobody wants to hear that of the 45,000 or so people that are murdered or die every year as a result of a gunshot wound, that half of them are suicides. Another 25% are suicide and murder. So there's some kind of mixture of suicide in there where they where they kill some people, they want to take some people with them. Then you have these random, I think when most people think of mass shootings, they think of these random where a bunch of people that had no connection with the person that was the shooter get killed. That's a very small percent. And then there's another group that are these one-on-one shootings. Not to say all of that is not terrible, but there are more factors to that. I would say 60% if you include the people who commit suicide as well as killing someone else and people that commit suicide, that's roughly about 60% of the total gunshot deaths in America, which is still too much. That's all mental health related. That is somebody did not interact with that person. You go to the Newtown, which was a traditional mass shooting, meaning that the person had some connection with the Newtown school through his mother, but... You know, he he was not an employee there or anything like that. He got the he did not buy the guns legally. His parents bought the guns for him, knowing that he had a mental health problem. The first person this this shooter killed was his mother. Then he goes to the school and kills the kids. That's a mental health issue. And that is a a trying to go around the law in order to satisfy what your child wants. That's breaking the law. Those parents paid with their lives, the mother paid with her life for going around the rules to buy the gun for the the gun-obsessed child instead of getting the mental health help. And then you have to dig down into the mental health help. Because while we do not want to be a society that puts people away just because they don't act the way we want them to, before they've done anything wrong. We don't want to be that society. But we also don't want to be the society 
that looks back on a situation like Newtown and says, oh, my God, oh, here, 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 and here, we could have intervened and this wouldn't have happened. Parkland was another one down in Florida where this young man had reached out for help. I have no sympathy for him, okay, because he committed this crime himself. But he reached out for help. He said he was having problems. And the state said back to him, you've aged out. We don't have any help for you. Okay, so we've got to get a lot of access. And I go back to the interview we did with Will Schofield last week is that it is impossible to get the number of practitioners that you need to get everybody who might need to be in therapy in therapy. It's not reasonable. It's not going to happen. There aren't enough people out there. But teaching children coping tools for how to deal with disagreements at a young age could pay off big time over time. And that's what we've got to look at. So we've got this situation going on with guns. We've got the debt ceiling where everybody's like saying, oh, the end of the world is coming. They've got a clock now ticking off until we default on our debt somewhere that's just making people more stressed out. It's probably in Times Square or something like that. I didn't bother to look where it was because I thought it was ridiculous. Then we've got this border thing coming up. And you're going to hear in some of the audio we're playing today that people literally are just lying about the situation. I mean, they're just saying whatever's going to make Joe Biden look good. And then they're saying, oh, people just misunderstand Joe. He's doing so much better job than you really think he is. It's it's a problem, folks, and, it, and it's frustrating. So at the core of it, we're going to have to go back to basics. We're going to have to contact your local elected official. You're going to have to talk to your friends and neighbors across the country and get them to contact their local elected officials because you contacting somebody in another state gets us nowhere unless they're running for president. We've got to be more motivated to get this message out and to have realistic, real conversations because I get it. I get emails from you guys all the time that they're frustrated. They're overwhelmed. They don't know where to turn because they feel like their lifestyle is being attacked. And I do believe there's going to be a rise of the silent majority in these next couple of elections. And I know that liberals are going to make you feel like that's something to be afraid of. I'm going to tell you it's something to applaud. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Mike Collins is joining me. He's the congressman from the 10th Congressional District. And, Mike, this is a big week. We've got these these uh, border situations coming up. We've got the debt ceiling discussions coming up. We've got the big press conference related to Hunter Biden and the, and the Biden family uh, crime syndicate coming up on Wednesday. And so this is a big week for the president of the United States. It is, Martha, and uh, it's it's a big week in all committees. Um, you know, we've all got oversight going on in every committee that we sit on, and uh, there's a lot of moving parts up there. But you're right, right now, you know, and to add to that, we do have a border immigration bill that's just about ready to put, be pushed out onto the floor, and I'm hoping that's going to come up this week as well. So what does that look like, Mike? Well, we don't have, I don't have the details on it yet, but I know there was three committees, three different committees that have been working on uh, separate border uh, bills. 
and uh, they have combined it into one. And uh, and I'm like you. Now, now I may take a, a little bit different approach on what you just said, but uh, if I don't see it, I'm really looking at putting it in there. I think we need to have a moratorium on all immigration until we get that border wall finished. When we get that border wall finished, then we'll talk about opening up immigration again. Well, this thing's and, way I out mean, of hand. It is way out of hand. And I tell this story without using names because this person is afraid of being identified. But there's a young lady who was an intern for me about 15 years ago. She was an actual survivor of the Rwandan genocide. Her family was wiped out except for her and her sister. And her sister is currently in Atlanta as an accountant. This person went to undergrad and graduate school here in the United States. But then when her visa was up, she had to go home. And she is in Rwanda waiting to come back in and reunite with her sister. And she is a legitimate, you know, she's a legitimate genocide survivor. She was educated here in the United States. She has a sister that is now a naturalized U.S. citizen. And yet she continues to get turned down because she goes through the proper channels and and two million people a year are coming across the border. It's just not right, Mike. It's just not right. No, it's it's not right. But but the thing is, you can you can blame that some of this is is on us. Yes. The reason we had you know yes. you've got an administration that fails to acknowledge that we have a and and a porous border down there. Yeah, the border may be closed, but ain't nobody coming through there. They just swimming across the creek or the river down there. Yeah, to me, they illegal. said somebody asked me because obviously Mallorcas can't define what a secure border is. I'll tell you what a secure border is. You have people only entering through the official entry points. And they are coming through in an orderly fashion. That is a definition of a secure border. That's right. But, you know, you take a look at who's coming across them, Martha. You, you, most of them are Venezuelan. And yes. they're men, young men. And, and they're not fleeing genocide. They're fleeing a communist country. Right. So they should stay down there and fight for that country and get their country fixed. Do, the, do that on your side. Those are young men. But... The, the, every time I talk and, and, and we talk about things, that border down there just leads me back to one word, and that's China. You know, that fentanyl pro crisis that we've got going on in this country, it's coming across that southern border. And it's being it's it all starts with China. And uh, and we've got to get a hold of the drug process, crisis that we've got coming across down there. Not to mention just the human trafficking and sex trafficking that's coming across that oh border. Oh, my God. It's but, 21st century slavery is what it is. It's 21st yeah. century slavery because these people and can never the pay back. Government. They can never pay back the money they owe. It's like, you know, organized crime. And because of that, they're forced into sex trafficking and and labor trafficking, really. I mean, and, yeah. it's, and you've got the federal government, at, you know, turning a blind eye to it. And transporting them wherever they need them to go. It's crazy. It's so crazy. <laughs> it, it makes, I, I think I've said this, this phrase more in the past 120 days and I've ever said in my life, there's no common sense to most of what we talk about up there. You know, it's funny because <laughs> I, I, I refer a lot of times to the inaugural address that John Kennedy made in 1960. And, you know, in 1960, 27% of our budget was defense. We didn't have a lot of the departments that we have today. But he talked about the development of our own hemisphere, of focusing, you know, the kinds of things that America does in our own hemisphere. And I got to tell you, he didn't live long enough to do most of those things, but he was right. 
he was right in 1960 that we needed to be focusing on our own hemisphere and the strength of our own hemisphere rather than worrying about what's going on around the world. And not that we can't, I'm not saying we close ourselves off from the world, Mike. I'm saying you got to take care of your own backyard first before you can fix oh, everybody I agree 100%. else's. Yeah. No, I, I would I would agree. We need to we need to bring those jobs. We need to bring that manufacturing back to China, and but From China. you don't have to bring it all back to right here. You could put some. You could encourage Mexico and Canada to to take up some of this manufacturing. But when you've got Mexico who is being led by China drug cartels, it ought to be telling telling you something. China is the root to most of the problems that we have in this country. So you mentioned oversight and. Um I think that's an important topic, too, because we've got, you know, Johnny Isaacson for years tried to get a biennial budget bill passed. And don't laugh out loud because y'all don't pass a budget on time. But the idea was you pass a two-year budget, and then in the off years, you get rid of all the pots of money. You go through and you make sure that money that hasn't been spent is zeroed out of the budget. And I think there's a place for that discussion. I know we've got to get through, and we'll talk about the debt ceiling in a minute. I know we've got to get through the debt ceiling and all of that. But we got to get back on some kind of regular order where we have regular oversight also. You know, you're exactly right. I, had a, I was talking to a group last week, and he said, Mike, if there's any one thing you could change up there, what would it be? And I said it would be just the mere fact that we run that place like a business, and most businesses will put out their budget, put out their goals for the year, and then we start passing appropriation bills on time. What if we passed the appropriation bills, I think, four times on time in the last 50 years? That You can't run a business that way. And uh, if, we, if we need to do anything right, we need to get back on track with passing those appropriate bills, getting this economy back on track, and uh, then taking a, a look at, uh, at that tax side of the, uh, of the budget uh, over there in ways and means, some of those fixed uh, tax costs that we have to incur. Absolutely. I'm so impressed with what Which I'm seeing. Which is the, the Medicaid and the Medicare. You yes. Know? And, yes. And you can, you can do that, Martha. There's ways, you know, that's why I told another group last week, just because we're not, that doesn't mean that we cut what you get as far as funding, but we could. And we could enhance or we could do things different on the cost side to make the cost go down. There's a bill out there right now that uh, Webster out of Florida is pushing uh, for Medicaid. And, and all it states is that doctors, most doctors don't take Medicaid now. And it's not because they don't want to treat the patient. It's because they don't want to fight the federal government to get paid. And so he's looking, he wants to pass a bill that says you can take a tax deduction instead of charging the government. And I guarantee you, you could see, you'd see people get off of that emergency room circle and go back to doctors who would be willing to just take like a $50, I think that's the number, $50 tax deduction. Um, to that's see a great Medicaid idea. Patients. I mean, my husband got to the yeah. point, now he, did, he isn't in private practice anymore. He's the jail doc at Hall County. But he got out of private practice because of things like that. And, and yeah. he... You know, he quit taking new Medicaid patients. He only would do patients that he already had that went on Medicaid, but he wouldn't take new Medicaid because it was too hard getting paid. Now, let's ask, let's ask you about this debt thing. Kevin McCarthy did what nobody thought he could do, which was cobble together. Yeah. You know, the Democrats for two months have been saying, show us your plan. Show us your plan. Well, two weeks ago, Kevin McCarthy got y'all together and showed a plan. And now the Democrats don't know what to do. 
No, they don't. And the Senate needs to take it up. You know, they, they we've sent over 60 bills over there, and they haven't taken up anything except, you know, naming March Maple Syrup Month. <laughs> so, so start taking even if you don't want, even if you don't like the bill, they should take these bills up and just vote on them, vote yes. them up and down. Yes. Well, however you want to do it. But uh, we certainly have. But we've we've put our marker down. Um, we're ready to negotiate. Our quarterback's ready. Uh, we'll see how it goes tomorrow. We've that is a very good plan. Four point eight trillion cut, um, which is a good start. And uh, and and it also will allow us to to get that budget process, get those approved bills, start pushing them through, and hopefully get this place back on track to where we start doing what we need to be doing up there. Uh, but there's some good things there. You know, Martha, I think we probably talked about it last year when I was running about the Rains Act. That's yes. in there. Yes. HR one. That's in there. Bringing back America, American energy production here. Um, getting rid NEPA reforms. Most people, I didn't even know what NEPA was, the National Environmental Policy Act, put in place in 1945. It allows the EPA just to go on and on and on for years on, a, on environmental disputes, on permits. Well, we've cut that down to 18 months. We were in Minnesota last week with a mine up there that's on the richest deposits in the world for copper and uh, nickel. They've been trying to get a permit for 20 years. So there's so much common sense, good legislation, and that debt ceiling bill that we sent over to the Senate uh, that they, they really, I don't see how they could argue on any of it. So it'd be, I'll be very interested to see how Tuesday comes out. So do you guys ever meet with the whole Georgia delegation, Democrats and Republicans? Uh, no. Okay. No, we don't. Y'all should. You should do that. Because there are well, things- uh, you know, Martha. It's I tell you, so I've got a bill that's go going to hit the floor tomorrow. Uh, the Trank Act, uh, Trank Research Act. You know, um, um, McBath, Lisa McBath is a co-sponsor on it. Good. Um, uh, the the uh, ranking member um, on our committee, uh, Cohen, he's a co-sponsor on it. Uh, and, and it's a it's a back office. It's an admin type of bill. What I call it just instructs the uh, National Institute of Standards Technologies to come up with some remedies and technology advancements so that we can protect our law enforcement and our border patrol from this uh, fentanyl and this veterinary tranquilizer stuff that they are putting in there as additives. Uh, we need to protect those people. So, you know, you can get bipartisan stuff done on, on that end pretty easy. I've got another bill that should be hitting the Ways and Means here in the next week or two to get more pilots and aircraft mechanics uh, certified through school. It won't cost the American per- people a dime in taxpayer money. That's got a large amount of co- uh, bipartisan co-sponsors on it. So, you know, we're we're working those uh, those bills through to help the American people common sense bills and and both sides see that they're common sense well bills. hopefully they'll see that this debt ceiling bill is a common sense bill even though they didn't vote on it, it because it because it makes sense we have never done a clean a quote clean debt ceiling increase we have always accompanied by spending cuts because the reason why yeah. you exceeded the debt ceiling is because you approved bills that spent too much money that's why you Amen. exceed the debt ceiling Amen. it's very I mean, it, simple it's very simple yeah. anyway mike yeah. collins how can people get in touch with your office if they need you they can uh, they can uh, email us or they can they can look us up. Rep uh, Mike Collins is uh, what you'll you'll find us on all the the social media stuff. 
our you know our main office is in Monroe, Georgia. Great. And uh, you know, if there's anything we can do, I, I tell you, Martha, um, we're finding that so many of the the federal agency, the people are not in their office working. Um, I know people that follow us. I, I had the uh, sec the the uh, Secretary Howland, Department of Interior. Uh, we had a big uh, over oversight with her hearing, and uh, she wanted more and more staff. That's all she kept talking all day. But at the end of the day, when I asked her how many staff she had, she had she said sixty thousand. The front page of her website says seventy. So I don't know where she lost ten thousand people, but they're not they're not working. And so we're finding a lot of constituents. If you have a passport, you better check to see when it expires. And the first day you're eligible to renew, I encourage you better renew it because that is the number one problem right now. They Absolutely. don't have enough people to. I agree with you 100%. Mike, we're up against yep. a break. It is collins.house.gov if you need anything, and we appreciate you yep. being with us today. Thank you. Appreciate your time, Martha. Putting the talk in news talk, it's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We've got Nigel Bigger on the phone right now, and he wrote the book called Colonialism, and uh, the clip that I played coming in or wanted to play coming in was kind of the the uh, the salute that uh, Prince William made to uh, King Charles last night when he talked about his 50 years of service. And I thought it was important after reading your book, Nigel, that this was a great day for us to talk about it. Welcome to the program. How are you? Thanks very much, Martha. I'm very well, thanks. Uh, glad to be with you. Thank you. So... Uh, your book, Colonialism, I think, while people are having a hard time, I think, hearing the message of your book, um, I first heard about it on the podcast Trigonometry, and then I bought the book. As soon as it came out, I read through it. Uh, I thought that it was a great story of what colonialism was, because there's a lot of messages about colonialism that people don't get. And that is that we've got some of the greatest democracies of the world that came out of colonialism. It's not all bad. That's, that's absolutely right. So I wrote my book uh, in order to contradict the, the very fashionable narrative that uh, European colonialism, British colonialism, was nothing but a litany of racism and economic exploitation and cultural suppression um, because I, I know enough about history to know it, it, that's just not true. I mean, all those things were true, but the opposite was also true. So, for example, um, yes, British people were involved in the slave trade and slavery from about 1650 to the early 1800s, but then the British Empire used its power for 150 years to suppress slavery all over the world, from Brazil across Africa, across India to Malaysia. So what I wanted to do was to say... Hey, folks, the, the, the story of colonialism, European colonialism, is actually a, a mixed one. No, and, and look, people make mistakes. People don't do things the right way. And if you look at people from 500 years ago with the lens of today, or 200, or 100, with the lens of today, they don't hold up. None of us do. When people look at us 100 years from now, we are not going to hold up. To, no, absolutely. To the rules absolutely. of the day. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, and as a, you know, I, I speak here as a, uh, as a Christian, so um, looking at my own life, uh, I, I see a mixture. I see all sorts of ways in which I fail, and I, uh, I don't expect political life to be any different. Um, uh, uh, 
nations and empires are run by human beings. We are flawed. Uh, we have limited power. Uh, we have to make uh, the best of, uh, of, of what's given us. And often we fail or we, whatever we achieve is imperfect. Um, so, so part of my book actually is, is uh, a promotion of a, of a conservative view of politics. That's to say it's not utopian. We don't expect perfection in political life, whether national or imperial. Uh, what we find are human beings sometimes making huge mistakes, sometimes being very bad, sometimes having good intentions, and sometimes achieving them. Um, and uh, the history of the British Empire is no different from, from that of any long-standing nation-state. Nigel Bigger is a, a Ph.D., a CBE. He is the Regius Professor Emeritus of Moral Theology and Senior Research Fellow at the University of Oxford. He's the director of the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life. Uh, he's written a book called What's Wrong with Rights. I haven't read it yet, but I look forward to. And his <laughs> new book is called Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, uh, and it's out by HarperCollins. How difficult was it for you to find a publisher for this book? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Martha, uh, uh, initially, uh, um, a publisher came to me in, in uh, uh, Easter 2018. Uh, I got myself into the press here because... I, I, I gave expression to what I thought was a completely uh, anodyne, um, um, r rather um, uncontroversial view that uh, we British can find cause for both pride and shame in our imperial past. But that got me into trouble, got me in the press, and then uh, Bloomsbury Publishing came to me and said, well, why, not, why not write a book about an intelligent person's guide to colonialism, which I agreed to do. Um, I then uh, presented the manuscript to Bloomsbury at the end of 2020. My commissioning editor read the manuscript, and in January 21, he wrote back to say that he was speechless with admiration for its rigor and its comprehensiveness. He said this was one of the most important books he'd seen in some time, and he predicted sales of uh, at least 20,000 copies. It then went into the copy editing process. It was given a cover, but in March 21, the head of Bloomsbury wrote to me to say that uh, uh, they were postponing publication indefinitely because, and I quote, public feeling is unfavorable. And I, I was told uh, um, that, in fact, they wanted me to walk away from my contract, which eventually I had to because um, it was clear they, they, w they were not going to publish the book. Uh, fortunately, HarperCollins uh, picked up what Bloomsbury had thrown out, and the book was published in the UK in February, and as you say, in the US just last week. Well, in free press, whether it's publishing books, doing what I do, and everything in between, is not only listening to the things you agree with, but it's listening to the things you don't agree with, and then having debate about it, critically thinking about it. You know, Absolutely. that's the main thing I'm trying to teach my children and grandchildren now, is that don't get caught up in the... It's, it is very appealing to only listen to people that you agree with. It's fun. You can laugh. You can have a drink. You know, you can do all that kind of stuff. But it's much more. I learn so much more from defending my position to someone that doesn't agree with me than absolutely. me just sitting in a room where everybody's nodding their head. No, absolutely, absolutely. And so, one of, of course, as an author, I was I was depressed when Bloomsbury uh, looked as if they weren't going to publish it because I, I I feared that no one would publish this book that I spent. Uh, um, a year writing. 
but much more than that, I was depressed at the thought that we in Britain come to the place where um, um, views that even my commission editor said were important and, and rigorously presented on a matter that is of, of, of wide public interest uh, couldn't get published just because the publisher was scared about what some people might think. I mean, I, they said public feeling is unfavorable. I said to them, well, you know, there's lots of public feeling out there. It doesn't all think the same thing. Which public feeling are you worried about? Which they wouldn't say. Um, but, but you're right. It, the, the prospect that, that, that uh, important ideas that are unfashionable might never get an airing just because of people are scared, that really worried me, uh, which is why uh, uh, the fact that uh, HarperCollins came to my rescue was such a relief because uh, it, it, it does say that at least some publishers out there have, a, have the courage to publish unfashionable stuff. And, and Martha, the, the good news is the book has done tremendously well here in the UK. It was in the Sunday Times uh, non-fiction bestseller top ten list for two weeks and uh, the, the hardback has sold about 24,000 copies. Uh, so the, the good news is, um, notwithstanding the neuroses of publishers, um, out there in this public, there's a, there's a wide appetite, uh, a large appetite for reasonable, thoughtful stuff on this controversial issue. So you are finishing the coronation weekend. I think you have a bank holiday today. Thank you for being with me on your holiday. You're welcome. And I was, you know, I'm one of those folks that get up early and watch that kind of stuff. And, and uh, Prince Charles actually Good. came to the University of Georgia when I was a freshman in college and watched an American football game. So all of us girls were in a titter because we were 17 and he was in his <laughs> 20s then. And we thought, oh, maybe we can be a princess. So anyway, it's a real thing. But you had traditions there that are over a thousand years old. I think the people that accompany the new king into the into the abbey that those two people have been doing that since 973 uh you've got other things that were done you've got a a prince who has been now a king who the funniest line was last night when hugh bonneville said he's the artist formerly known as prince which is was very <laughs> funny very funny but he had this great um he has this great life of service. He's been through his ups and downs. He's probably been in the public more than almost anybody who's been in this position uh, in his life. I think it's important for us to have these kinds of discussions because you see this history before you. Even though we separated ourselves from it about 250 years ago, we still are a part of that history. Yes. I mean, I, I'm... Um I'm a supporter of, of the monarchy as we currently have it in Britain. Uh, don't mistake me. I mean, I, I think there are plenty of, of republics around the world, not not including your own, uh, which do very well. So uh, a monarch is not essential for political health. But I, I do think the monarchy as we have it, of course, it's changed over the centuries. Uh, the monarchy as we have it um, has certain advantages. One of them, of course, is, yes, it, it embodies... Um, historical continuity, the national continuity, which in our case, in parts, runs back a thousand years, because uh, the, the Kingdom of England uh, was virtually formed by the um, end of the 10th century. Um, and that's, that's very reassuring. Uh, um, the, the national psyche has, has benefited from the continuity, for example, of Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth's reign, uh, because uh, she represented a kind of stability and continuity uh, after the Second World War, um, during a period of, of enormous national change. Um, so it's often said that, that monarchies can provide a kind of 
psychological reassurance to a nation going through a lot of a lot of change. And um, the, the monarchy has developed to the place now where both Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth and also uh, King Charles and Prince Charles as he was uh, devote a lot of time to um, um, supporting uh, civil society and civic organisations and demonstrating that there's more, to pu- there's more to public national life than party politics. And that's part of the, the benefit of a monarchy. They're, they're about party politics, but they can address parts of uh, public life that uh, party politicians with their, with their short-term obsessions uh, can't. So I do think the monarchy uh, has certain benefits. Uh, we, we would survive without it, but I think it's good to have it. Well, and the beauty, I think, of all the events were not only did you see the coronation of King Charles and Queen Camilla, but I think the um, the Waleses, uh, Prince William and 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 yes. Princess Catherine looked amazing and looked they looked like security. Do you know what I mean? It was yes. like yes. It, it projected that this monarchy is not going anywhere and yes. it's very secure. We're talking to Nigel Bigger and, and the book is Colonialism. I would suggest that you get it, have discussions about it. Uh, you can find all kinds of information about him uh, and the book. It's available. I happen to get mine on Audible and listen to it, but you can get the hardback copy and do all of that too. We thank you for being with us today and we would love to have you back again. Thanks, Martha. It's been a, been a joy to talk to you. Have a good day. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. It is the Martha Zoller Show. I kind of feel like, uh, you know, the Wizard of Oz, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Uh, because we've got so many things going on. We've got Trump, the Trump Town Hall. We've got his references to Georgia in the Trump Town Hall. Uh, you've got Biden and the committee. You've got all the stuff on the border. You've got the debt ceiling. So much. And that's why we have Matt Brown on on Fridays. Shondell Summers here with me, too. Matt, I mean, really, what is the top story this week? <laughs> I mean, that's the question. Are, are, are we talking about, you know, political impact here, long, long term, you know, impact on people's lives and everything? I mean, you know, for, for bread and butter issues, it's got to be the debt ceiling fight and whether or not that's going to get resolved. But then for, you know, the trajectory of just our, you know, country and, and everything, you know, you could maybe argue that it would be the border. But then yeah. for our politics, I mean, we just blew up the, you know, Republican primary and everything and apparently gave a whole new paradigm with this CNN town hall that I'd love your perspective on. So, you know, everywhere you look, there's there's massive big news at the moment. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And I'm glad you mentioned the CNN um, uh, town hall and people criticize CNN because the audience leaned Republican. It was Republican and leaning Republican. But it's a primary, folks. Okay, so it doesn't matter what the other side thinks of the candidate in a primary, in a primary. And they do the same thing for Democrats, Democrats that they have on for primaries. If they ever get another one because people are so mad, they would do Democrats and leaning Democrat because it's a primary. So it makes perfect sense to me. They did what they did with that audience. But I thought as far as the um, the reporter I think starting out with the 2020 election and kind of harping on it was really more to get him to say something obnoxious rather than to be informative to the people that were there. I didn't like that. I would have rather gone right into policy. uh, And that's what I would have done if I were the moderator. Um, I like the fact they had lots of questions from the audience and they didn't seem to sandbag them. 
Uh, and I thought Trump was, you know, Trump. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of old men. I'm tired of seeing four old men in the room talking about the debt ceiling. I'm tired of seeing Trump and Biden. I'm over it. Uh, I would like to see younger people. Well, yeah, no, I think I think at the CNN town hall, I think it showed a lot of the you know dilemmas that are going to be facing Trump's rivals coming into this primary. I think that it showed you know a lot of the you know quandaries for you know folks in my industry in just terms of how we want to you know like focusing on policy is I think um, fundamentally the most important thing. Focusing on the actual stakes for people's lives and for the country is the most important thing. Um, and the question is just like how do you how do you do that in this moment? <laughs> um, and that's so, something that obviously you know my team um, grapples with all the time. So let me ask you a question because you sent me an article about Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, and I think I'm saying that right. Um, and I kind of like him. I mean, he's a, he's a little farther too far right for me as far as some of the things he's saying. But I love the fact he's 37. He's young. He's he's a self-made guy. I mean, he you know, he's he's probably better than Trump was at that age. OK, he is really and some people Axios called him auditions to be the next Trump. But I think he's kind of his own man. Well, I'm really, I'm really intrigued by Vivek because I think that, I mean, as you said, he's only 37. He's going to be around GOP politics if he wants to be for, for some time in the future. And he is bringing just a different dimension to what, um, you know, Republican politics and conservative politics in this country could look like. I, I mean, he, he came in and got his, you know, fame and got the attention of the Republican donors and the grassroots because he was one of the early crusaders um, and a new face for, you know, quote unquote, anti-woke policies, anti-environmental sustainability, green policies. Policies. Um, but now he's like really come out with this whole other raft of, you know, policies that he's calling for American renewal, American greatness, and, and trying to think through kind of like what if you, if you, forgive me, took the, took the, the vibe or the, the general temperament that Trump was going for in his first term, but then you tried to turn it into policy, what would that look like? What would the Make America agenda look like? And, you know, Governor Ron DeSantis has tried to do some of that. There's various politicians around the country who've been thinking about what this, um, you know, next generation of, um, you know, conservative America first leaders looks like. But um, Vivek is definitely seems to be one of the smartest trying to actually make a, a brain trust out of it. He's things. really quick, too. I mean, you can't really mess him up with a question he is ready it seems to be he's ready for anything and he'll go anywhere i mean he's not one of these guys that's only doing conservative media he's everywhere i haven't seen him yet really (laughs) until you sent me this um article which is very interesting and he does sound like sort of trump light although he's uh you know 37 like you said he wants to uh, eliminate the IRS and the FBI. That's pretty radical. <laughs> I guess we won't be collecting taxes anymore. Or I don't know if he, is he a fair taxer. Is that why he's saying eliminate the IRS? I think that his goal with all federal agencies is that this is his claim that the deep state, um, you know, has some hold on the federal government, and he's in some ways tried to clean up that, um, quite frankly, conspiracy um, and says that we'll just have to make new agencies. So with the FBI, you know, he said that, well, you know, you need to get rid of it and just start over from scratch. And, and you know, and I don't agree with that. Law enforcement. I don't agree with that. But what I do think, Matt, is that there is a real lack of oversight. And and there are a lot, you know, I, I jokingly say when I when I drive from Reagan National Airport to wherever I'm staying, when I go to D.C., I get very depressed because 
there's a building with letters on it all over the place. And once you've built a building, you're never going to get rid of the bureaucracy, okay? Because that's that puts it in stone, you know, that, that you've got the Department of Whatever on there. And I just think there's a real lack of oversight. There is... Um, the bureaucracy, the bureaucratization, I don't even think that's a word, but I've made it up. The bureaucratization of everything. And I think that there needs to be uh, kind of like what we do here in Georgia, where we we don't do a audit every year, but each department gets audited. on One department a year gets audited so that every seven years you've looked at the entire budget. I think we need to do something like that. Now, the Defense Department says they're too big to audit, but I don't agree with that. Matt? Yeah, yes, yeah. I think that this gets at, um, you know, something that I've been thinking a lot recently, which is about, you know, congressional investigations and how would you actually investigate and audit some of this stuff. Um, You know, the House Republicans have promised that um, investigations and oversight over the Biden administration and these federal agencies are going to be one of their top priorities. But in this modern day and age, what does an investigation actually mean? I mean, it, it used to be, um, you know, back, um, you know, with, you know, Senator Carl Levin and John McCain, that there would be these, you know, congressional staffers who would spend just months, like, you know, really just reaming through um, either what companies were doing or what the um, federal agencies were doing and, and just really holding people's feet to the fire. Whereas now, um, you know, are Josh Hawley and Elizabeth Warren doing that or are they... Well, I will, I will tell you, Matt, that the number one thing I think we can do that would be the best thing, and it ties into the debt discussion also. Um, when Sonny Perdue took over in 2002 and then had to manage through the economic crash that happened in 08 because he was in until 2010, he was able to manage the Georgia budget for several, couple of three years before he had to start making cuts because he said there were, quote, pots of money that hadn't been spent that he was able to repurpose. And you hear that in the debt ceiling talk as far as the COVID mm. money. They call it clawing it back. But there's money all over this government that hasn't been spent that that is technically still on the books. So really, in fairness to people who have run up the debt, this debt is probably not as high as what it the number is because... Because there are these these budgets that are built in that if they don't spend the money, the number stays there and it stays there forever until someone takes it out. And so I think two things you could do that would make a huge difference is you go through your budget and you get rid of this money that hasn't been spent. And you get it off the ledger if it hasn't been spent and it's not going to be spent. And then you see what your real debt is. And then you make a decision about it. I know that's just too logical, though. And nobody's going to do that. But it would be the right place to start. And then it wouldn't hurt anybody. If you haven't spent the money and you don't need the money, it wouldn't hurt anybody. But I heard a statistic yesterday. Um, Food Finder is a app that started in Georgia, but now it's across the country where it helps people find food services near them if they're in trouble, if they've got food uh, insecurity. And... I heard a statistic yesterday that that about 40% of families that are eligible for SNAP and those kind of things never apply. So maybe that's why they're keeping those pots of money, because those people might apply someday. But, you know, we just got to keep the budget clean. And former Senator Johnny Isaacson 
uh, had a t- you know a two year budget plan where you'd make a budget for two years. Don't laugh because they can't even make one for one. But then in the off year, you would do this kind of oversight stuff, and you'd get in a cycle of doing it. That's what they do in Texas, and it works pretty well there. Hmm. Hmm. No, that's. I think that's a really interesting proposal, and um, you know. As we go into these debt ceiling debates, I think that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in states and how states have, um, you know, administered their budgets that, you know, maybe um, obviously congressional Republicans have taken some cues from, but that also, um, you know, the leaders in the Senate and, um, you know, the Biden administration might be able to point to and say, well, this is how we want to, you know, come up with a grand bargain, which is, you know, the benefit of federalism. So what are you working on for this week or next week, I guess, since it's Friday? (laughs) <laughs> Definitely. I'm taking a look at um, the state of state legislatures um, all across the country and basically not just the laws that have been coming around them related to elections, um, because we've actually seen in a lot of ways really quietly, um, more so than when all the hubbub was going on in 2021, a lot of changes to how the 2024 election is going to be administered um, across states. And then and then also taking a look at how state legislatures, um, you know, are people being bipartisan in these places still? And I think that there's there's some surprising results there. But when you take a look at it, um, you know, there's some definitely some broad bipartisan comedy, actually, even though there's a lot of um, very clear flashpoints. Absolutely. And I will tell you, if you cross paths with Senator Ossoff and I've asked him this question, too, is that former Senator Perdue put a plan together with 17 senators, Democrats and Republicans, that would redo the budget process. And they looked at what you're talking about, states, countries and companies, best practices. And they came up with a great plan that would get our budget back on track. At that time, Harry Reid was still the majority leader. I know that's a blast from the past. And and so he would never let it come to the floor. But I've sent it to Senator Ossoff and to Senator Warnock because they did the work. It was bipartisan. It made sense. But you couldn't get any traction on it. So if you cross paths with him, ask him about it. And I'm going to keep asking him about it. Absolutely. We'll do to hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller.